This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Are you vaccine hesitant? Tonight on the program, we talk with Dr. Jason Kinderchuk about potential benefits for the double vaccinated. Does lightning strike twice? I didn't think so until I spoke with Carl Seltzer about beating cancer only to be diagnosed with a deadly lung disease. And Dr. Karash Edelotti joins me to discuss Naomi Osaka's withdrawal from the French Open because of depression. Finally, with the end of the pandemic on the horizon, so might be your relationship. Breakup coach Nancy Ruth Dean joins me to help you. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. We have the birth of a would-be royal juxtaposed with the devastating discovery of the remains of 215 children, the little ones. Our hearts are broken with the horrors of the residential schools. Good evening and welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show, the show that educates everyone about sexual health, how it relates to overall health, making your relationships the best they can be. I'm your host, Maureen McGrath, a registered nurse, nurse contents advisor, and sexual health educator. If you would like to be a part of the program, please give me a call. The number to call is 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. You can text me there as well or email me in confidence at nursetalk at hotmail.com. Although we cover a variety of health subjects, this show is not a replacement for a visit to your doctor virtually or by phone these days. Tonight on the program, we have so much to talk about. We're going to be talking about what it's like to suffer with a chronic lung disease during a pandemic. Also going to be talking about breakup because a lot of people, well, with the pandemic looking like the end could be on the horizon, so might be many relationships. And so I have a breakup coach who's going to guide you through a spiritual journey about something that's rarely discussed. Something else that is rarely discussed as well are those mental health subjects, mental illness like anxiety and depression. Dr. Karash Adelati joins me. He's a psychiatrist and we're going to be talking about what it's like to suffer with depression. Also going to be talking a little bit about revenge porn and high blood pressure as well. Anyway, our blood pressures are soaring these days with all that's going on in the world. And uh, But right now, we're going to be talking, getting the, the latest and hopefully the greatest on what's going on with the pandemic. He is an assistant professor. You've heard his voice before in the program. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Manitoba, Canada, and he holds a research chair in the molecular pathogenesis of emerging and re-emerging viruses, and he is advancing research in COVID-19. He is none other than Dr. Jason Kinderchuk, who's now back in Winnipeg. Good evening, Dr. Kinderchuk. Greetings from uh, the central time zone, finally. Fantastic. It, it has been a while. How, how are you holding up? <laughs> uh, we are on day, uh, I think day six now of, uh, of quarantine. We've got a, a two and a half year old and a, an eight month old puppy. So yeah, oh. about, about as well as you could be by day six of, uh, of quarantine. Right. <laughs> oh, honestly, my, my heart goes out to you. I know it's <laughs> very, very difficult. I saw on Twitter, somebody said my 
um, third quarantine in Canada this year. Um, and he had a little video showing himself going into yet another hotel room. Uh, and yeah. he does have little ones as well. So it's not easy, that quarantine. And, and let's start there. Uh, looks like things are maybe there's some hope about opening up. The border is still closed. I'm not going to ask you if you think that the double vaccinated who are returning to Canada, um, I won't ask you a political question, but I'll, I'll just ask you, do you think it's safe that double vaccinated individuals uh, return to Canada and uh, no longer have the need, need to quarantine? What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, Dr. Isaac Bogosh had, uh, you know, a, a quick uh, kind of, you know, quick and dirty Twitter thread uh, today talking a little bit about the the language and discussions around double vaccination uh, in Canada as compared to what we've seen in, in the U.S. from the CDC. We have to start talking openly about it. I, I think that certainly with people that have been, uh, you know, vaccinated twice, all the data is so suggestive that, you know, we, we need to be providing um, some guidance for them, but also more openness for for those individuals that are in that that position. We we haven't seen the dire circumstances of people, um, you know, becoming infected and passing on the virus that that are uh, doubly vaccinated. We we just haven't seen the, those those large concerns play out. So I think we we need to you know kind of look at that as as being something very positive and really being kind of a, a marker for us that you know getting double vaccinated actually puts you in a position to, to get back to some normalcy. So I, I do think that, that we need to start thinking about, okay, what, what does this mean? And we have to start to appreciate what the vaccines uh, have shown us so far in, in their real world data. And you raise a great point. Uh, one of the issues around the vaccination is that uh, many people may forego their second shot. They, they may forget about it. They don't think that it's that important. But if there is a carrot such as... Um, you know, you can travel, uh, your life can be far more normal, that that might be uh, a good incentive for a lot of people. Well, and I think it should be. And, and you know, the, listen, I, I know everybody's tired of hearing us talk about variants. And, and certainly, I've gotten to a point of just saying, oh, I, I don't want to talk about a new variant for a long period of time. But we, we do have a new variant that's upon us with, uh, you know, B1617.2, which is the Delta variant. Um, listen, the, the data has, has shown us pretty conclusively that after one shot, people see decreased vaccine uh, effectiveness against that variant. Two shots, actually, you, you look pretty much, you know, on par with what we've seen with, uh, you know, with the other variants and strains. So I think for us, it, it's, it's, again, important for us to get that message across that if we don't want to be going through the exact same thing we're, we're going through now, certainly here in Manitoba, get two vac- the vaccines and, and get them at the time point that you can. Um, one vaccine is just not going to cut it, and it risks so much that we've been fighting for. Absolutely. I think there are some frustrations with some of the regulations and the restrictions, especially uh, for those who have been double vaccinated or who are looking to get double vaccinated. And I think it will also help with tourism in this country, which has been devastated by this pandemic. Uh, but I, I want to ask you about um, the, the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. There certainly are people who are anti-vaccination, the anti-vaxxers. They do not want to get vaccinated. We're seeing that if we look south to the state of Wyoming, where large numbers of young people are in intensive care units because that state has a very low uptake in terms of being vaccinated. Do we have two pandemics those people who have been vaccinated, whether it's one shot or waiting for two, or those who are just never going to get 
vaccination? Well, I think, you know, I think when we look at this idea of pandemics, I mean, I think we've we've had two pandemics between 2020 and 2021 with the variants. But with people that are, are hesitant or who are not getting vaccinated, uh, you know what? Uh, I, I think, again, it, it's a vocal group that still makes up the minority. So um, can we still reach, you know, some level of, uh, you know, of, of regression of transmission, um, even with those people that, that are not going to get vaccinated, regardless of what information is thrown at them? I, I think so. I think certainly we, we see hesitance in other countries and, and certainly in the UK and, and transmission rates have dropped. So I think we can still counteract it. And I think in Canada, we still have a minority of people that fit in that category. But to be fair, the, the things that we need to be focusing on right now are those people that are really are in that hesitant crowd that are sitting on the fence and don't really know what they want to do. They they've have you know, some concerns, but they're maybe not getting the information they need and certainly not from resources that they trust. So to me, that's where the time needs to be devoted. The anti-vaxxers, listen, you can throw whatever data you want at them. It's not going to change their mind. So let's focus on the people that actually have questions uh, that, that, that are attainable and, and, and reachable. And what kills me is uh, people are so afraid of getting COVID and they may uh, manifest some symptoms. They may have nasal congestion or even fever or muscle aches, chills, any one of the symptoms, diarrhea, which affects 29% of people with COVID. They're so afraid to get it. And then uh, you ask them if they have been vaccinated and they were certainly eligible to get their vaccination, their first shot anyway. And, and they basically say no. So there's yeah. this fear with getting COVID, but there's also this delay in getting vaccinated. Would you put them into that vaccination hesitant crowd? Yeah, you know, I, I would, right? And I think part of it, again, is that, you know, we I, people want to think about vaccines as being something that's fairly innocuous and, and that, you, you know, you just get a shot and you feel fine and you feel normal. Not the case. And, and I think... You know, we, we've talked so much about the obviously the, you know, you know the thromboses and, and, and some of the different concerns with, uh, you know, with, with larger side effects for, for vaccinations that, that people kind of tend to miss the, the forest for the trees and that listen, you, you are going to feel a little bit discomfort, but it's going to be pretty short order. And at the end of the day, it's going to be a lot better than, than being on a vent or seeing one of your loved ones on a vent. Um, so, so get vaccinated. Do your part to to get back to, to normal. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath, your host for the program, and Dr. Jason Kinderchuk is joining me on the line. He is advancing research in COVID nineteen. Thanks for staying on the line, Dr. Kinderchuk. Absolutely. All right. Um, now I know you're in quarantine there in Manitoba, and uh, but there are some there there's some hope on the horizon in other places, British Columbia has uh, outlined its four-point opening up plan with even, surprisingly enough to me, was um, recommendation only of masks as of July 1st if we, cer- if we hit certain benchmarks. Ontario is setting a vaccination policy for nursing homes, saying workers must present proof of vaccination, a documented medical reason for not being vaccinated, or attend a program on the risks of not being vaccinated. Obviously, they feel that vaccination is critically important. How important is this for businesses, hospitals, long-term care homes um, to keep this uh, pandemic or this infection at bay? 
Yeah, I mean, it's critically important, right? So when we think about Canada, I mean, the thing we have to continue to look back at is what were our hardest hit groups um, in regards to severe disease? So obviously, we know long-term care facilities, personal care homes. And then, of course, we know that, that people in lower socioeconomic status and, and as well those that, uh, uh, that, that have been marginalized or, or, or minority groups have all been hit unbelievably hard. So when we think about this idea of, you know, of trying to keep vaccination high and, and trying to reduce transmission, we've got to think about the fact that, you know, those are the groups that we're really trying to protect. Um, and the unfortunate reality is, you know, particular with, with uh, people that are, um, you know, in high risk categories as far as age uh, or, or underlying health comorbidities, we don't necessarily know how long their immunity is going to last for post-vaccination. So we can't just assume that because they're, you know, double, you know, have double vaccinations that they are now protected for good, that this is something that we have to continue to monitor. So I, I think we're going to be, you know, kind of facing this idea of, of scrutiny for, you know, for some time being until we have an idea of what this virus is going to do next. Absolutely. I have David in, from Alberta who's, wait, who's on the line with a question. Good evening, David. Uh, good evening. Uh, actually, I have three questions, if you'll permit me here. I'm one of Go the right ahead. Uh, hesitant ones. Uh, okay. My first question is in, with regards to uh, asymptomatic people. Now, has it been determined if asymptomatic people have a natural immunity? That's my first Ooh. question. Yeah, good, good question. question so- is, is, okay, I'll let you continue, and then I'll ask the second question, which is related. So just going to say, ahead, so, for, for asymptomatic, yeah. Yeah, so for asymptomatic infections, um, in regards to immunity, we, certainly I haven't seen any data that suggests that those people that have milder infections uh, have any sort of natural immunity. They may have a stronger early immune response that's just general to, to viruses or any sort of microbe. Um, but it's not, I haven't seen anything saying that it's related to some underlying, you know, um, you know coronavirus antibodies that, that are present. And what was your next okay, question, that, David? That my, my, my second question was, was people who get the vaccine and, and don't show any symptoms of the vaccine, is there a relationship between that and possible natural immunity or the same response that you mentioned for asymptomatic response? So in regards to this idea of, you know, immune response or, or any sort of, you know, kind of recognizable, uh, you know, symptomatic responses post-vaccination, I haven't seen anything that's related back to the generation of, of long-term immunity or, or, or immune response in general, right? We just know that there are people that will have stronger uh, post-vaccination responses as compared to others. I mean, I, you know, there are two of us in this household that, that have, you know, very opposite kind of polar opposite um, responses to vaccination, but we both have strong levels of antibodies post-vaccination. So I don't think you can make those generalizations yet. We're looking for biomarkers for that, but we certainly don't have those yet. Okay, my third question, if you'll permit me, has it been determined yet whether uh, asymptomatic positive people are actually contagious or not? Yeah, so actually a close friend of mine, well, a close friend, a, a, a good colleague of mine who I published with in the past, uh, Dr. Mooj Sevek, um, has done quite a bit of work on this uh, in, uh, from St. Andrews in, in Scotland. And she looked at, uh, you know, basically all the cases of, of symptomatic and pre-symptomatic disease that, that have been reported. And asymptomatic people can spread. Now, it's, it's certainly less than what we see with people that are symptomatic or even likely those that are pre-symptomatic, but they can spread. And that's the unfortunate concern for us is that even if you have one, of, you know, one event of transmission, 
Um, if it's a super spreader event, then we know that that could lead to dozens or hundreds of people getting infected, or it could lead to a community that now has virus that is able to transmit more readily through the population. May I ask okay, you a question, you David? David, yes. you're, you're vaccine hesitant, you said? Uh, on the fence. You're on the fence. Um, any, for me, any particular yeah, reason? For me it's, it's, um, well, I'm an engineer, and I tend to look at data and statistics, and, uh, and I like to see trends. And for me, it's for me, I think I've had it already. Same with my wife. We actually, our, our son did get it, and we were in such close proximity. Like when he was symptomatic, my, my wife and him were sharing a, a plate of poutine. And yet, her and of course, her and I being married, you know, there's that, that close relationship as well. Neither one of us, we both tested negative. But he, he, got, he got it really bad, and there may be some, some long-term effects from it. So from that, it's, it's a quite, you know, this is where it comes back. I'm thinking about possible natural immunity and how it all relates to vaccines and, and asymptomatic transmission. Like, I'm just trying to put the puzzle pieces together, right? Okay, sounds great. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for all your questions. And uh, Dr. Kinderchuk, a really quick question here. Anything to do with uh, blood types um, and, and that people who have type O, for example, may not get COVID? I've heard that. Oh, I'd, I'd have to go back and look at it, Maureen. You know, I have not seen a lot of data coming out recently uh, about oh. that. Not to say it doesn't exist. Um, it just may have been without, uh, outside of my purview, unfortunately. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath, registered nurse, hosting this program for you. Pulmonary hypertension is a type of high blood pressure that affects the arteries in your lungs and the right side of your heart. In one form of pulmonary hypertension called pulmonary arterial hypertension, the blood vessels in one's lungs are narrowed, blocked, or destroyed. This damage slows blood flow through your lungs and blood pressure in the lung arteries rises. Your heart now needs to work harder to pump blood through your lungs, and this extra effort eventually causes your heart muscle to become weak and frail. This can strike at any age. Joining me on the line are two people who have been diagnosed with pulmonary arterial hypertension, and what made it worse is that they suffered through this pandemic in a way many people didn't realize, because a lot of people don't even realize that they have pulmonary arterial hypertension. I have Natalie Roy on the line with me. And I also have, good evening, Natalie. How are you? I'm good, Trey. Oh, good. And I also have Carl Seltzer on the line as well. Hello, Carl. Good evening, Maureen. Uh, Thank you both for joining me tonight to talk about pulmonary arterial hypertension. It's it's not a subject I have to say that I've ever discussed on the program in the past, so I really appreciate both of you coming forward. Um, this can strike at any age, and it, and it knows no bounds. It doesn't discriminate. You can be older. You can be younger. And in fact, Natalie, you were only 20 years old when you were diagnosed with pulmonary arterial hypertension. Um, is that correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. And how long have you been living with this now? Um, I actually received my double lung transplant, um, in 2017. Wow. So So I was living with TH. I think I had symptoms for about a year and a half before I got diagnosed. And then, um, what were some of your symptoms? Um, I couldn't walk up any, any incline, like I'd take like three or four steps and I would just faint. I just couldn't. Yeah. I just, it was any, anything that like. My heart exerted. I would just drop. 
So lots of blue lips, lots of heart palpitations, very, very breathless and a lot of fainting. And uh, this, you must have been quite surprised being the age of 20, thinking that, um, you know, being diagnosed with a, a disease that mostly affects older people. Yeah, that was devastating. Of course, of course. And uh, so you had lots of fainting spells and shortness of breath, and you must have had uh, lung infections as well? Not, not really. I think I had pneumonia once in that time before I... Maybe not, though. It's, it was a bit of a hazy time. I don't think I had any infections, actually. And, and did you go to the doctor, uh, you know, repeatedly telling them about your symptoms? Were you dismissed at all? Were were the doctors really trying to figure this out? What what was your experience like? My experience was a little bit different. So I was young, and uh, and I, instead of going to get it checked out, I just kind of denied it and was like, oh, I'm just tired or hungry. or And I just kind of kept pushing it off, pushing it off um, and altered my life instead. I would stop walking that way or I'd take the longer route because there was no inclines, um, things like that. And I actually walked up the, it was an eye department and I walked up to, up to the uh, very top floor and when I woke up, I was, the ambulance was there and my lips were blue and, you know, he piggybacked me down to the ambulance and took me into the ER. So I got diagnosed in the ER um, and was very sick. Yeah, they gave me about six months to live if I didn't start treatment. Oh, my goodness. Um, we'll get to the treatment shortly. Um, Carl, I want to talk to you a little bit about your journey. You had beat cancer. One doesn't think that lightning strikes twice, but apparently in your <laughs> case, it did. Um, well, yeah, that's, that's a good way to put it. Lightning strikes, strikes twice. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I was diagnosed with, um, with AML, acute myeloid leukemia in uh, November of 2017, went through all that treatment. And that's another story, of course, but I got a stem cell transplant on March 1st of 2018 and, you know, was looking forward to a recovery and all the rest of it that happened. And then uh, uh, during that summer, my health just started to, to uh, just de- deteriorate. It just got worse and worse. And kind of like Natalie said, uh, I was trying to push myself uh, to just walk around the block and, and I couldn't get around the block without stopping four or five times and, and uh, you know, just, you know, blacking out, getting that black tunnel vision. And uh, like a stubborn old man, I just kept putting it off and thought it was, you know, something to do with a stem cell transplant. And uh, when I finally went and saw my oncologist, she took one look at me because I, I, too, I couldn't get up out of bed. I couldn't shower anymore. I couldn't, if I lifted my arms above my shoulders, I would black out. And she took one look at me and put me in hospital. Good for her. Um, at which point started the raft of, of, um, of tests to find out what's going on. And did the whole gambit of that for about a week and a half in hospital uh, when they brought in the pH team. Thank goodness at uh, Vancouver General, there is the, the pH clinics right there. And, uh, you know, they went through all my all my medical history and uh, performed a right heart cath on me. And that's when I was diagnosed in September of that year of 2018 with uh, PAH. Now, you, you're a self-described stubborn old man, but you were also an athletic world traveler. You were running the seawall in Vancouver and biking around Granville Island, and uh, you were relegated to brief walks around your neighborhood um, and something you need to take multiple breaks. 
um, because of shortness of breath. Uh, how are you doing these days? How's, how's your treatment? What's your treatment course been like? Well, my treatment course is they put me on a drug called Careful, which is administered through an IV, uh, uh-huh. which is, and that's a, it's a pump. It's a 24-7 pump, so it goes with a Hickman line, which you're probably very familiar with, Marine. But it is a line that goes in my chest and uh-huh. delivers the, uh, the, uh, the drug uh, basically straight into my heart. Um, and another oral medication called Abzurka. And they're just designed to, uh, to keep the, the blood vessels open. Uh, so that my heart, you know, can pump normally without being enlarged and having to go through all that uh, that high blood pressure in the lungs. Um, I'm alive today, thanks to the, the great care of the medical personnel and the drugs that I'm on. Uh, but of course, you know what, with any drug, there's a lot of side effects. And uh, uh-huh. I, tr- I try and mitigate those side effects as best I can. Having said that, I'm certainly not uh, the person I was three years ago. Uh, but, uh, I'm not, uh, I'm not in a wheelchair. I'm not in a scooter yet. Uh, I have an e-bike, which has been a godsend having the e-bike. I uh, bet. oh yeah. It lets me once again, kind of, you know, get back to that part of my life. But, um, kind of as Natalie was pointing out earlier, uh, you know, I still can't climb much more than 12 st- uh, flights of steps, uh, mm-hmm. without, without, you know, losing my breath and having to stop for a minute. So it has its challenges. There's no doubt about it, but, uh, but, uh, but I'm happy to be here. Absolutely. And we're, I'm very happy that you're here tonight as well. Now, um, Natalie, you, both of you actually described shortness of breath and dizziness or fainting spells, but some of the other symptoms, you must have had fatigue, chest pressure or pain, and you can also get swelling in your ankles. Um, and also you mentioned, Natalie, bluish color to your lips and, and heart palpitations as well. Many Canadians don't realize they have this condition, and yet they may have these symptoms. What would you say to people out there who are experiencing these kinds of symptoms, Natalie? Well, I'll share a little story with you. I have a friend who I, uh, who I knew at the time that while I was having all these side effects, and she was witnessing me going through all this, and, um, and then she, she was there while I got diagnosed and it was a big thing. My dad picked me up and moved me to Calgary and I started treatment and blah, blah, blah. Um, And then she was walking up the stairs with her laundry and she noticed that she could not get up the stairs. And that became more and more, she's breathless. She would start to black out and she went straight to her doctor and she said, I need you to test me for pulmonary hypertension. And boom, she had had pH and she caught it so early Yeah, she caught it so early. So I was, I mean, like, what are the odds of that? That's like, oh, know. absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, anyways, I just wanted to share that because that was, you know, so crazy. But um, I do find. And, and how like, old was she? How she's old was she? A couple years old. I think she's about my age, like maybe 30, okay. 38 or something. Okay. So she was quite young as well. Yes. Yeah. And, yeah. and so. It goes without saying that um, the cause of this, you know, is maybe unknown as idiopathic pulmonary arterial hypertension. Mm-hmm. What are some of the other yeah. causes? Uh, I So I have idiopathic. Some of the other causes are like secondary um, to another, to like an autoimmune disease. Um, some could be a secondary to cancer. Um, what was the other one? Uh, there's the pulmonary is it the fibroids. There's uh-huh. like a sister, a sister went to pH. Um, uh-huh. 
And I imagine, I, I gather that, um, you know, which is so popular, some of the um, prescription diet medications, it can be a side effect of that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, for sure. Or, Absolutely. Or, or use of uh, drugs such as methamphetamines as well. Um, and I know people that, that have congenital heart disease also. Um, I'll just get back uh, to you, Carl. Um, do you know the reason, uh, the cause of your pulmonary arterial hypertension? Uh, the short answer is no. It's idiopathic. Uh, uh-huh. you know, I mean, there's lots of opinions, um, but but there's nothing conclusive. I mean, I you know I personally think it's probably it might have been brought on by some of the chemo treatments and things that are happening. And but but there but it is idiopathic. I've talked to my cardiologist about this lots, and uh, and it's just one of those things. And I know that some people really want to dig down deep into the condition and what's going on. And for me, it was kind of a moot point. It's like if I got it, I got it. I trust the medical professionals because I'm up walking around. So, you know, right, right. Uh, <laughs> but we, but, but no. The short answer is no. We don't know what what brought it on. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Living in the pandemic was difficult for all of us in many different ways, but in particular, it is extremely difficult or must be incredibly difficult to live with it when you have a deadly lung disease, since this disease is transmitted through, is airborne, transmitted through respiratory droplets. Carl Seltzer and Natalie Roy joined me on the line to share their story about pulmonary arterial hypertension, a disease that can lead to shortness of breath, blue lips, fainting, and other serious uh, symptoms. So thanks so much, both of you, for staying on the line. Natalie, what was it like uh, living with the threat of COVID when you have pulmonary arterial hypertension and a double lung transplant? Yeah, it was, I mean, I'd say the first eight months, um, I kind of maybe shut down a little bit. Like I, my husband just, I was like, okay, you tell me how to live, <laughs> what to do. And that was it. Like we, I, he did all the going out, most of it. Like he did anything that was kind of like, that he had to go out into the world, go into stores, touch anything. And we just kind of like, did what half of the country thing, I, I think did and baked bread. We just started baking sourdough. And, um, yeah, I got like really into our sourdough and creating like buying up toilet paper. Yeah, totally. Yeah. No, we were pretty good about that, but yeah, definitely, definitely buying up all the flour. Um, Of course. And, and what, how are you feeling with your double lung transplant? What, what's life like from a respiratory perspective for you? Oh, I feel great. Oh my gosh. I feel great. Yeah. I feel great. Actually, I do a spirometry, uh, test every morning and this morning I like think I blew the highest I've ever and it was yeah so my lungs just still want to get bigger and bigger and fuller and more powerful yeah it feels really great that's excellent had you tried other treatments prior to the double lung transplant um I was on I was on everything that I could have been on so I was on uh remodulin uh IV uh same same as Carl with uh but the 24-hour pump that goes in through your neck and down into your heart. And then I was on three orals, uh, oral, oral uh, therapy and uh, blood thinners, I think. Yeah, there are a few. Yeah, 
So I was on pretty much everything I could get. I was at the at the end and had to get a transplant. There wasn't really right. anything available and, to me anymore. And Carl, uh, what was it like for you living with this deadly lung disease during a pandemic? Well, it's actually, yeah, it's it's been uh, it's been a challenge and and a little freaky at times. Uh, uh, thank goodness, you know, um, I live in a, a major city where. I can get my groceries delivered and, you know, can get my, you know, get meals delivered when I don't feel like cooking. Uh, so I'm fortunate in, in that respect where a lot of people uh, with, with a, you know, with a lung disease that are maybe in a more rural community don't have that, that ability to do. So that was good. Uh, but for sure, isolation is it. I had the chocolate that I too uh, became a sourdough man. <laughs> Amazing. I think, I, think, I think everyone did. Um, and then, you know, uh, Zoom has been a great thing to stay in contact with uh, mm-hmm. with various organizations and stuff that, that I participate in. Thank goodness for that, uh, which really does help with the isolation. But uh, a, a lot of isolation at first, you know what, we, we were hunkered down all the time in, inside of our, uh, of our apartment. Uh, but uh-huh. since then, as we've learned a little bit more about COVID-19 and how it's, you know, and its effects and everything else. I actually went back to volunteering at the local hospital at the information desk, just, just a two hour shift once a week. Uh, to be quite honest, I felt, I feel more safer at the information desk at the hospital than I do walk in the grocery stores, but that's another story. Um, right. But the isolation, absolutely. But it's, it's nice to get out. You know, I had my first vaccination. I get round two on Tuesday and. Uh, oh, that's it's, great. It, yeah. It's kind of nice to walk around the neighborhood uh, without a mask on, but uh, but for sure, going in stores, we're, we, my wife and I, we still mask up. It's just what we're going to do because we can't take a chance. Yeah, right. And we we saw flu rates decrease drastically this winter as well uh, because people were ma- wearing masks and washing their hands and, and staying away. <laughs> um, yeah, so there are certainly complications of pulmonary hypertension. You can get right-sided heart enlargement, blood clots, arrhythmias, bleeding in the lungs. Um, women who are pregnant um, may uh, it can be life threatening um, for a person who's pregnant and the developing baby. Uh, did you experience any of those side effects quickly, mm-hmm. or complications? I should say. I'll go real quick. Yeah, when I had my, I was in heart failure when I had my transplant, and uh, I took X-ray in August because I was in, I was in the hospital with, in August with a really bad um, septic infection. And they took an x-ray of my heart, and then I, after my transplant, my transplant was in September, and then November they mm-hmm. took an x-ray. And you can see my heart was three sizes, three sizes bigger than my heart is now currently. Wow. It was wow. massive. Yeah, massive. Wow. It, was, it was really, really something, really something to look at. So, yeah. That's amazing. I did, I did something from yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was going to say. Go ahead, Carl. Yeah, exactly, uh, Natalie. My when I was in hospital, my heart was double the size what it should have been. I was pretty much in heart failure too, checking out. Um, so thank goodness. But amazingly, as soon as I started for me, as soon as I started the Carapel inje- uh, treatment, uh, within a week, uh, I was, you know, feeling a whole lot better. And now three years later, I just had another right heart calf done two weeks ago, uh, and my cardiologist is pleased with it. You got questions, she's got answers. The nurse is in for Nurse Talk. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath here hosting this program for you. 
Dr. Edelotti, Dr. Karash Edelotti, is a psychiatrist whose journey in holistic brain health began as an immunology student at McGill University. He observed that foods had a major impact on his immune system, kept him away from illnesses, and turned his brain into a calm and happy one to the extent that people around him nicknamed him the Zen Dude. Dr. Edelotti is a psychiatry graduate from the University of British Columbia and works in private practice at Elumine Centers for Brain Excellence. And he works with a variety of mental health conditions. And I'm delighted to say he joins me on the line. Good evening, Dr. Edelotti. Hi, Maureen. So happy to be back. How are, uh, how are you doing tonight? Good, good. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you so much. Uh, that, that means a whole lot more in a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> that answer. We, we've all realized that our health is our wealth. It That's is, for indeed. sure. It is. Yes. And, and sometimes we might think wealth comes in the form of fame or fortune, but no, it comes in the form of your health. And that's why this week with the announcement that Naomi Osaka withdrew from the French Open in a social media post where she detailed her battles with anxiety and depression. In fact, she said she has suffered bouts of depression since the U.S. Open in 2018, the year she defeated Serena Williams to win the tournament. I remember that moment. Um, And that reminds me of something that Dr. Brene Brown speaks about quite often, and that is comparative suffering, uh, which is when we're not quite good enough or we're thinking other people deserve it or we're comparing our lives to somebody else. But But let's start with depression. How common is depression? Um, Maureen, it's one of the most common uh, condition, mental health conditions. Um, in fact, I mean, I, I don't have the numbers for uh, post-pandemic uh, because I think uh, the actual rates have gone up significantly. Um, and one of the things that we know, um, depression affects everyone. It doesn't matter whether the person is uh, old, young, whether they're famous or not, um, it really, really uh, affects a lot of people. And, uh, you know, sometimes we look at uh, the rates uh, up to even even 70% high. In, in At some point in life, it comes and goes and it affects people. Um, you know, there's severe depression, obviously, and moderate depression, but even light depression uh, affects a lot of people. Absolutely. And there can be situational depression as well. How significant is it that Naomi Osaka, who is a world-class young female tennis star, has dropped out? And, and what would you say to somebody who might say, come on, it's the French Open. Couldn't she have just sucked it up? It's an opportunity of a lifetime. Well, it's easy for us to, <laughs> to even consider <laughs> that. But I mean, think about the amount of pressure that uh, these athletes are under. And we know that uh, individual sports athletes uh, suffer a lot more from anxiety and depression compared to um, team sports athletes because they have that added layer that they are the face of the team or the team of one person. And, um, you know, just following Naomi's journey, she, I mean, she, it started out for her as anxiety. And uh, she, um, you know, she had to manage this throughout this uh uh, throughout all the tournaments. And then, of course, you know, as you put up uh, a brave face uh, for the media and for the public, um, the isolation and the pressure as an individual 
uh, increases more and more to the degree where you know feelings of hopelessness start to kick in because you you have all this overwhelm that you have to deal with uh, alone, basically, or or maybe with your loved ones. But at least in the face of the media, uh, it doesn't seem. It seems like you're a superwoman or Superman. And so she has had to put uh, put up with this for such a long time, and to expect there to show up. I, I believe the French Open uh, fined her for not showing up for the media, and to expect her yes, to have to do this uh, is it, absolutely ridiculous. Uh, and I, I think good on her for coming out and really expressing that she was, uh, you know, she was feeling uh, depressed. And uh, I think a lot of um, legends came to her defense as well, which is really wonderful to see. Oh, she said she received so many uh, messages of love for her and support, and she was so grateful to people. I, I think that's incredibly helpful as well because there still exists a stigma to any mental illness. Um, I'd like to talk about her reference to pressure. A lot of people, and in fact, I had a virtual consult with a patient today who suffers with anxiety and a bit of depression. And, and she spoke about, and many patients of mine speak about this pressure, that it's, it's almost, they, they think is that others know what they're talking about. And it's almost this self-imposed pressure, whether you're a world-class athlete or a student at the University of Victoria, uh, it's um, there is sort of this pressure that they talk about. Tell me a little bit about that, and how is that related uh, to depression? Is this a common emotion? Well, it starts out as uh, anxiety, in fact, because you know when you have that much pressure to be um, to be seen as an elite person or someone who's super resilient, who can deal with. Uh, you know, all the pressure that is in, in any kind of uh, endeavor that involves a pressure cooker. Um, you know, p- p- these individuals uh, are under so much pressure to be a role model. Uh, and, you know, specifically for Naomi, if you think about it, I and mean, she she has, she's mixed Japanese and black. Uh, she's from a minority. And... Um, she has had to uh, basically step up to the plate and also be a role model for a lot of people. And that's an added uh, layer to all of this. And, you know, for all athletes uh, in general, um, it starts with anxiety from having to perform, having to be bringing it day in, day out. And when you get isolated, when you feel that you cannot – you know, be yourself and have to always put up this brave face, it starts to become, um, you know, hopeless for you. And that's when uh, depression kicks in. And we can't also forget that a lot of times these uh, these, uh, individuals come from very, uh, you know, high expectation families sometimes. And, or, or, you know, parents are athletes, parents are uh, in some professional uh, capacity, have been performing quite highly, and so this, you know, the kids have to also perform to that level. Um, furthermore, is genes obviously, you know, we forget that depression affects uh, everybody <laughs> across the board when they have the genes. So it doesn't matter whether famous or not, and um, right. you know, that's not an and exception. She might be either. a world. 
yeah, she might be a world-class athlete, but she has admitted that she's, and not a lot of people are. Um, in fact, people fear public speaking and death. I think those are the two <laughs> uh, biggest fears in life. But she, she has said she's not a natural public speaker and gets huge waves of anxiety before she has to speak to the world's media. When you think about that, the world's media, who could, who wouldn't get nervous and find it incredibly stressful to always try and engage and give the right answers all the time? I would imagine something that she's very uncomfortable with, this would add much more pressure to her already existing life to perform in front of the world, basically. Absolutely, absolutely. I, you know, I recall uh, having to present my thesis in front of five people <laughs> in university, <laughs> and I turned into a beat uh, <laughs> because you know, it was very anxiety-provoking. <laughs> now I cannot imagine... Uh, you know, already she has the pressure of uh, performance, but on top of that, if she has social anxiety, she has to go and uh, put up a brave face in front of world media. And at this young age, I mean, we can't forget how young she is. Um, you know, when when we've been through a few battles, at least you know we have an opportunity to get ourselves exposed to different anxiety-provoking situations and kind of uh, become veterans. But you know, in her age, uh, to have to go through that. Uh, Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. My guest is Dr. Karash Edelotti. He's a psychiatrist and the medical director at Elumine Center for Brain Excellence. Thanks for staying on the line, Dr. Edelotti. And we also My have pleasure. Derek on the line from Edmonton. Good evening, Derek. Hi, Derek. Hi, Maureen. Hi, Dr. Edelotti. Hello. Oh, uh, sorry. Uh, I'm not too bad. How about yourselves? Very Great, well. Thank thanks. you, Derek. That's good. Uh, so I am wondering, um, what is the difference between bipolar depression and borderline personality disorder? And is it common for someone with bipolar disorder, or sorry, borderline personality disorder to be misdiagnosed with bipolar disorder? So, uh, Derek, uh, absolutely. First of all, the answer to your second question: it is it is possible to um, sometimes misdiagnose uh, borderline personality and bipolar disorder. Um, the big difference between the two is one is a mood disorder, one is a pervasive uh, personality disorder, which uh, oftentimes starts in um, teens to late adolescence and kind of uh, you know continues uh, throughout life. Uh, whereas bipolar disorder is a mood disorder. Um, and the biggest uh, difference is that you look at uh, basically the diagnostic criteria for the two. Someone with a, a borderline personality oftentimes, um, you know, uh, has uh, more episodic kind of up and downs that you notice, whereas in a bipolar uh, person, there is actually a uh, re required diagnostic uh, criteria for one week of, you know, up and down, um, well, not for one week up and down mood, but an elevated mood or sometimes expansive mood. Um, and along with that, you have, you know, decreased need for sleep for that person, and you have the uh, uh, required, uh, you know, flights of ideas where the person is constantly having one thought to next, uh, getting into dangerous situations. And that impulsivity you can also see in a borderline personality along with the rage, uh, but it's not something that disappears. It, it really continues on 
unless that person seeks, um, you know, psychotherapy or counseling help for that. Okay, because uh, like I was, uh, I was diagnosed initially with uh, bipolar disorder, and my psychiatrist had tried a whole bunch of different medications and combinations of uh, antidepressants and uh, uh, antipsychotics. Yeah, and low doses, and that didn't seem to do anything for me. But once I was switched over to lithium, my whole life changed. And and could I ask what uh, specifically was uh, better after that? Um, I was able to think a lot more clearly. Um, I didn't go into these rages like. Um, I'm talking like snap rages where someone would just say the wrong word or something like that, and instantly I would be in a rage. Um, I don't get that anymore. Um, My anxiety levels have gone way down. Yeah, so one of the things there that we see, um, the mood instability that we observe both in bipolar disorder and borderline personality disorder can actually uh, improve significantly with a mood stabilizer such as lithium. So that's quite a, that's a common thing. Um, but, you know, to have a bipolar disorder, there's also other symptoms that need to be involved, such as decreased need for sleep, right? And this is something mm-hmm. that um, oftentimes someone with borderline personality uh, disorder would not uh, necessarily show. Or, um, you know, abandonment issues in borderline personality is very common where, we have that uh, love-hate relationship with a person, and I don't know if this was the case for you when this was uh, diagnosed for you, but um, in, bo- in bipolar disorder, oftentimes that's uh, not seen uh, throughout uh, you know, the person's life. It, it may be uh, observed during you know, a, a very short period of time, such as a week when the person is going through a manic episode. But other than that, you know, when they are going through the depressive uh, episodes, that would not be necessarily there. All right. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Adelaide. I really appreciate you answering that. Absolutely. My pleasure, Derek. And thanks for the call, Derek. I'm so glad you're doing well. Um, There is, we were talking earlier, uh, Dr. Adelotti, we've just got about a minute left or less, um, about speaking the truth. And and Naomi certainly referred to that, that she, you know, said the truth is I'm suffering with anxiety and depression. How important is that for people to, um, you know, the truth sets us free to share their truth um, and be accepted by people? Absolutely. Not have that shame. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely critical. And, and yeah, exactly. You just said it. Uh, they don't live in shame. They don't live in guilt. Um, Naomi basically took a lot of the pressure that was on her as a role model, as a tennis player, off by by just you know uh, disclosing this. And also, you gain support from others. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, other than family members, uh, and some people may not even have that, but, uh, you know, I, I suppose that Naomi's family members may have known of this, and this uh, allowed her to also gain support from other sources, not just, just from the family. So um, that's a critical thing to do. Uh, and also, uh, you know, freedom from feeling alone as an ill person. Because we can't exactly. forget that. We're up against people. the clock here, Dr. Adelotti. I don't want to forget to um, mention your website, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, Center.com. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And we'll definitely get you back because this is such an important subject. Thanks it so is. much for being Thank on the you, program Marie, tonight. For You're very day. welcome. It's time for the Bedroom Bulletin. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. You know, there is some light at the end of the tunnel, but there may be a, a dark shadow on your relationship. It could be that the pandemic is coming to an end, and so might your relationship. Many people got together because of the pandemic or made decisions to move in together because of the pandemic. And now that we're all going to be launched, hopefully soon, eventually, we'll be free to get back out there. Somebody may not want to get back out there with you. This can be a heart-wrenching, heartbreaking time. This is why I'm delighted to have my next guest. She is a breakup coach who teaches men and women how to do the emotional work to get through this incredibly tough time through one-on-one coaching and online courses. Her name is Nancy Ruth Dean, and you've heard her voice before. Good evening, Nancy. Hey, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm really good. It's really great to be back. Yeah, so great to have you as always. So I imagine that uh, your phone is ringing off the hook these days uh, with people whose relationships are ending. This has been a byproduct of the pandemic. A lot of relationships have come to an end or so say the divorce lawyers out there anyway. Um, This is a very difficult time for people and it's not really a time that people talk about too much. People don't realize that uh, support is needed in this time. Um, Why is it important that people see a breakup coach or or get the support they need or or are coached through this extremely difficult time where most of the advice is just, just suck it up, get over it. You know, why would you want someone who doesn't want you? Yeah, that's, this is one of the big reasons why I became a breakup coach because I, when I started as a matchmaker, I would see time and time again, people wanting to get into relationships, but not really knowing how to let go of the past. And that was kind of, the big topic of conversation and then last year happened and some people got into relationships uh right at the beginning of quarantine right they kind of uh cuddled up and just decided they were going to quarantine together and then a lot of others were faced with having to um see each other 24-7, and that was something completely brand new. So a lot of people came to me saying, you know, this was something that I never thought I would ever have to face, and I don't really know who to talk to because, you know, you have one married couple who's saying, I'm really frustrated, um, I'm I'm fighting with my partner because I'm, I'm with them 24-7, and then you have the totally single person in quarantine saying, hey, you know, I would absolutely love to be fighting with somebody, but I'm single and now I can't date because of quarantine. So who do they go to? They come to me and, you know, we, we really work through it. So it's it's been an interesting past year to say the least over here. I can imagine. And, you know, when, when people break up, you know, initially they may have the support of their friends and family, but after a while, their friends and family can get tired or, or sick of the same old, same old conversation, especially if people aren't moving on. So how do you help people move on uh, from their past relationship? 
Well, a few things. It, it does depend on the person, and you're absolutely right. Friends and family, I've been in that position. You do get tired of providing advice and having them, having the person going through the breakup at the time saying, you know, I really appreciate your support, but then they call you the next day and then they just repeat things over again. So where where we take it to the next level in coaching is, you know, we sit down and we analyze, is there a pattern here in your relationships? You know, that that's kind of where we start or we, and then we dive into what really happened in the relationship. And we really make it about, the person that's in front of me and not just, you know, bashing the ex or this is what my ex did, but really looking inside and saying, you know, where can I take accountability? What was my side of things? And where does that all come from? And and looking at those patterns and family history and so on. So you really dive deep. And I just want to say, if anybody out there in Radio Land is suffering uh, with the breakup of the relationship and having difficulty, feel free to give Nancy a call. The number to call is one 399 That's 1-877-399-9898. You can text us there as well. I want to talk about the patterns that you mentioned, Nancy. Is one of the problems with the patterns that people seem to go after the same or they end up getting into a relationship with the same type of person uh, one after another after another and only to be experiencing failed relationships. And I really hate to use that word failed relationships, but, um, you know, repeated breakups. Yeah, it, it depends on the person. Sometimes you might, let's say, get into a relationship with the same kind of per, uh, person, let's say commitment phobia, right? That's a really popular one. And uh-huh. the other the other side of it is, you might be in a relationship with completely different people, but you have the same insecurity pop up no matter what's going on in the relationship, right? So we take a look at, and and sometimes it can feel initially like, no, this is a completely different person. I don't have any relationship patterns. Can we skip this question? But (laughs) again, as we do the emotional work, we really take a look at uh, the different points in the relationships that that start to connect right and and you start and that's when you can start to see oh again there's something with me that's happening that I can investigate because we want to be able to go through a breakup and we want to have that closure and have our ex say you know they were wrong or they shouldn't have done that but we could be waiting a really long time for that so that's why it's great to take a look at the emotional work and the patterns and work through that because that's where you have control right absolutely and that and you can look at your contribution to the breakup of the relationship when you when you take responsibility for it or when you're you're getting into relationships with commitment phobes. Tell me a little bit. This might be a bit of a sidetrack, but tell me a little bit about uh, <laughs> commitment phobes. What, why are they commitment phobes? Is it about difficulty making decisions? Um, what what is the uh, reason that uh, people may be a commitment phobe? I look at I, I look at you know, attachment styles, you know, secure, um, avoidant, and anxious. I think everybody, if if you don't know what attachment styles are, um, 
look into it, there's a fabulous book called Attached, the New Science of Adult Attachment and how it can help you find and keep love. Um, Looking into how our different attachment styles attract and just saying attachment styles, you might think, oh, I'm definitely anxious or I'm a little avoidant or I was dating an avoidant. Um, We have to look at our pattern to see how uh, we're attracting people who are a little bit more on the avoidant side of things because it, it takes it takes two to tango. Um, I say that kind of loosely because some of us have been in really horrible relationships, but in terms of commitment phobia, you're either dating and let's say staying with somebody with commitment phobia and you keep trying to make it work, even though the person is in front of you continuously showing up and maybe talking the talk, but not walking the walk. And I think all of us have to some degree dated somebody like that. Um, But yeah, avoidant attachment styles and how your attachment style plays into um, attracting or keeping somebody in your life who is a little bit more on the avoidant side of things. Absolutely. I remember I had a patient one time who was in a relationship with a guy for 15 years and uh, he kept delaying the engagement and delay, delay, delay. And then, uh, you know, she finally, you know, he was going to do the engagement on the May long weekend. And then when that came around, He then said, um, why don't we wait until August long weekend when we go away? And she, that was her final straw. That was it. And she just said, I'm done. That's it. I'm gone. And he went and bought an engagement ring, a very expensive one. And he tried to get her to marry him at that point. And she said, absolutely not. I never wanted uh, to marry somebody on conditions. I never wanted it to be this way. And, and they parted ways and he was devastated after that. But, you know, 15 years, he'd had every excuse in the book. He, one of the excuses was that he was a consultant and he traveled. So it wasn't like they were dating for 15 years. It was like seven and a half because of all of his travel, his extensive travel. So, um, but people could then have regret about breaking up as well. That can also be another, I would imagine that's another aspect of, um, break your breakup support and your coaching and and also feeling like they're at fault. What did they do wrong? How do people deal with that guilt that they might feel? Well, I, I think, so there's a couple of things that it is very difficult for a lot of us to end a relate. I think all of us to some degree want to end a relationship with this level of certainty that they're not going to hurt or they're not going to have to reflect and, and feel that they made the wrong decision. Um, And that's something that comes up a lot. So for those who are struggling and they don't know if they should end a relationship, they, their fear kind of keeps them paralyzed a little bit. Right. Um, Uh But you, you, you do have to take a look at your relationship. If you've been together for 10 years and things are still not going in the direction that you want them to be going in, or you notice that you keep putting in more of the effort and, and you keep having those critical conversations and they're not really, the partner's not really willing to show up in those conversations, or maybe they are, but they're not 
taking action, you, you have to look at the data of what you have and make a decision and and decide powerfully and with confidence that it's more important to choose yourself sometimes, well, all the time, and know that whatever feelings come from that, you can work through that. But the, staying in a relationship out of fear is not is not why we want to have relationships, right? We want to have loving, healthy, conscious relationships, not because we're afraid of breaking up and staying we, because we of that. We certainly do. And you certainly have your work cut out for you because as the old saying goes, breaking up is hard to do. Um, but I'm glad you're there, Nancy, to help people get through. And how can people get in touch with you? You can visit me at hellobreakup.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And thanks so much for your great work. And, and it's an area where not a lot of people are doing a lot of work. And it's, it's definitely an area that needs um, attention. And I'm glad you're paying attention to it. So thanks, Nancy. And thanks for joining the program again. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.